Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. You know, pamphleteers had, I think, a tremendous amount of influence on the public. You know, I think they distilled a lot of uh, elements uh, of political thought that had been present in the colonies for a long time, but that hadn't really been given the occasion to rise to the fore. And I think that they, they managed to, to package and present those ideas as, as viable responses to, to the political problems that arose. That's Tristan New. And he has a new article focusing on the debates that tried desperately to avoid the war before the revolution began. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Henry Holt & Company, publishers of the new book, The British Are Coming, The War for America, Lexington to Princeton, by Rick Atkinson. Available now. Hello everyone, welcome back. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're looking at, in many ways, the war before the war. Think about that. We spend a lot of time talking about individual commanders on battlefields. I, myself, because of my uh, television series on the Pennsylvania Cable Network, have become something of a battlefield historian That is to say, not analyzing each battle on its own, but just how we think about battlefields and what battlefields mean to us. Uh, And I found myself in today's interview uh, with Tristan New using a lot of those same mental muscles that I've gotten accustomed to using over the last five years. But the battlefield we're talking about today is not uh, some piece of ground or some important hill or river crossing. Today we're talking about the ideological battlefield of the American Revolution. So many times we get wrapped up in the war itself, 1775 uh, to 1783. Now, there's merit, of course, to studying these battles, but we have to remember that the American Revolution was not a war so much as an era, and it was a product of a highly intellectual a highly reasoned Enlightenment movement coming out of Europe. Because of this, we're living in an age in the 1760s and 1770s of big thinkers writing out thoughtful, meaningful arguments meant for public consumption. I'm not talking about a 140-character sentence on Twitter here. I'm talking about deeply reasoned, passionate Uh, ideas to solve problems uh, grounded in the very basic fundamental philosophies of reason. One of the things you find when you study the revolution is that in the years leading up to it, there were a lot of voices uh, in the middle calling for alternatives. When you're faced with rebellion and military suppression of that rebellion as your two options, as your two opposite poles of this debate, Uh, What you lose is that place where most of us reside, that middle section. And in that middle section, 
you will find some of the most important and I think the most uh, revealing editorials and pamphlets and public debates that we all too often overlook in the revolution when we only look at it being all one thing or all the other. Today our guest is Tristan New, and he has recently published an article for the Journal of the American Revolution uh, on a man named Joseph Galloway, who wrote one of these just great 18th century uh, treatises on how to solve the problems of this emerging conflict, dripping with Enlightenment terminology and thought. And he actually proposed something that, you know, may sound radical uh, for us, uh, but at the time was pretty reasonable. And it was this idea kind of growing on what Benjamin Franklin had put forth in the 1750s of a North American legislature. You know, North Americans, British North Americans, uh, were proud Britons, and they valued their rights as Englishmen. And they had legitimate beef. They had legitimate problems that were not being resolved either in a timely fashion or in any fashion by individuals in Parliament who really, you know, given voting and, and elections, didn't represent them. So Galloway is going to put forward this notion of an intercolonial legislature. Tristan New will talk all about this in today's episode. Uh, and Galloway wrote it fairly desperately. Because he believed that, number one, it would avoid a catastrophic civil war, which in so many places the American Revolution was. The violence, the chaos, the uncertainty. Uh, but two, I think he actually did believe that there was a way for the American colonies to deal with their problems, to have their voices heard in a meaningful way, and not separate from the empire. It's a great interview. It's very fascinating. I hope you enjoy it. Sit back, relax. And enjoy our interview with Tristan New. Tristan New, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on the program. Pleasure. Tell us about your background. I am uh, a native Kentuckian. Uh, I actually spent my entire life in the, in the bluegrass state. Uh, and I've always been interested in early American history. Uh, even even as a child, I can remember uh, really being fascinated you know, by stories of the revolution. Um, it's not something that I really planned on pursuing professionally or, um, you know, in college as a major or anything, but um, it really gripped my attention. I, I took a few early American history courses at my undergraduate uh, institution, University of the Cumberlands, and uh, I, I really got hooked on the idea of pursuing that further. Um, so I recently obtained my master's degree from Eastern Kentucky University, where I did a uh, an MA thesis on uh, debates over the Pennsylvania State Constitution, uh, and um, I'll be enrolling at the uh, History PhD program at Boston University in the fall uh, to continue you know, my study of the Revolution. What first drew your interest into this topic? So I, I was vaguely familiar with Galloway for a long time, but I had never really uh, given his thought much attention. Um, this essay actually originated as a seminar paper. Uh, I took a course on the Atlantic World. Uh, last spring, and the, the instructor uh, gave us the option of choosing a single primary source or a, a set of related primary sources to do our paper on. And um, he didn't he didn't really specify any particular sources. You know, he kind of gave us carte blanche to pursue our interests. And um, so, being being really interested in the origins of the, of the revolution, uh, was vaguely familiar with Galloway, and I was interested in the paper 
on something to, you know dealing with loyalist thought. Um, I was vaguely familiar with Galloway's playing union, but I hadn't really uh, done too much research into it. Um, so I did some digging, and I ended up finding a candid examination, uh, his pamphlet um, that he wrote to defend uh, his plan of union, which had been rejected by the Continental Congress in 1774. And uh, I was really struck by the depth of, depth of his thinking about the British Empire uh, and his innovative approach to trying to resolve the problems um, separating uh, the American patriots from, from their counterparts uh, in Parliament. Um, so I found it to be a fascinating uh, pamphlet, a really great uh, source um, for, for that seminar paper. Your article features a story about Joseph Galloway. Uh, tell us about him. So Galloway was uh, a fairly important figure in Pennsylvania politics. He had served in the uh, Pennsylvania Provincial Assembly from 1756 to 1774 and uh, actually served as speaker of the institution for a few years. Um, but his, his his place in the in legislature really uh, became shaky as as he became a proponent of uh, uh, remaining uh, loyal to the to the British Empire as as proponents of uh, independence uh, gained control of the Pennsylvania political scene. He really got driven out, and um, so he he actually uh, assisted the military occupation of Philadelphia in 1777 and and, and after that failed, uh, he he went to Britain, where he became advisor to the to the British government. And uh, I think I think if I'm not mistaken, he had his estate seized by uh, the Pennsylvania legislature in 1778. Um, so, so everything that he worked to achieve in terms of becoming a prominent figure in the, in the Pennsylvania legislature uh, really really went to shambles um, because of his uh, loyalism. Uh, that that really created a divide between him and, and his counterparts in Pennsylvania. Why did Galloway have such a disdain for the Continental Congress? I think the most obvious reason is that he he felt personally slighted that they dismissed his plan without uh, giving it very much consideration. Um, but but I also think that um, that he had disdain for them because he believed that they were pursuing a radical and unnecessary course of separation. Um, he thought that they were being unreasonable in, in pursuing uh, a course of independence. Um, he, he believed that the problems that were plaguing the empire could be resolved through his plan of union. So, so he thought that they were rejecting uh, what was, in his opinion, a really practical uh, resolution to the, to the conflict between Parliament and the colonists. Um, he thought that they were moving on, on a, a path that was unnecessary and that could have been avoided had they adopted his proposals. Galloway will make his mark in history writing a pamphlet called A Candid examination of the mutual claims of Great Britain and the colonies. Uh, what do you think his motivations for writing that were? I, th- I think that uh, one reason was to, to vindicate himself. Um, you know, I, th- I think that he felt that his reputation had been unduly harmed by the Continental Congress's response to his uh, plan, proposed plan of union. Uh, but I also think that he wanted to generate some pressure on the Continental Congress to achieve a compromise with Britain. I, I think that he wrote the pamphlet as a way of attempting to drum up public support for, for his uh, plan of union uh, and, and placing some pressure on the Continental Congress um, to, to adopt uh, a resolution to the crisis rather than pursuing a uh, course he believed would uh, terminate in independence. He'll mention in his writings an important term, imperium in imperio. What did he mean by that? 
It's a phrase that roughly translates to a state within a state or a power within a power. Uh, it was something that was invoked often in the 17th and 18th centuries as, as a problem. Um, it was this idea that uh, sovereignty could not be divided. And of course, this, this created a lot of theoretical problems um, in, a, in a government like uh, England's where power was you know, divided between multiple uh, branches of government. There were different estates of society that were believed to be represented within the government. Um, it, it was really the, pr- the problem of, of trying to locate the source of power. Um, a lot of people pointed, um, especially going into the 18th century, to the people as, as the ultimate source of sovereignty. Um, but, but there were those like Galloway who believed that sovereignty was actually institutionalized within the government. And so that was really the basis of his argument that parliament was um, sovereign. You know, He believed that because parliament possessed legislative authority that was by extension sovereign um, because because ultimately it, it was the source of all action within the in the British government and if that uh, made it the ultimate branch the ultimate source of authority um, within England pretty closely related uh, is the subject he writes about of indivisible sovereignty could you explain that it's it's, it's a closely related idea um, you know, there's this notion that the sovereignty couldn't be divided. Because sovereignty had to be located within a single source of authority, it was believed, um, it, it, it could not be divided or dispersed between different branches. Um, even when different elements of the government exercised power, um, they, they were still operating with, within the constraints of a system in which sovereignty was placed within a single source. And, and Galloway believed that that was Parliament. Um, so he believed that, you know, while in practice power had been exercised um, between both Parliament and, and the American colonies, you know, that it had been divided between them, um, that, that in theory Parliament was supreme and therefore Parliament had the, the power to exercise its authority over the colonies without any sort of constraint or reservation, and that American appeals to self-government um, as, as a counter against uh, Parliament's exercise of its sovereignty didn't really hold much water. One thing that stood out to me uh, as a peace lover, uh, if you want a pacifist, uh, is that Galloway, for all of his faults he ascribed to the Continental Congress, did see a way forward for a colonial legislature uh, that would meet and really address the grievances that caused the revolution. Could you talk about that idea? So he, he wanted uh, the, an intercolonial legislature that would be patterned after the House of Commons. Uh, he referred to it as a Grand Council. Um, he, he wanted it to be closely tied to Parliament. Um, he thought that the intercolonial legislature could cooperate with Parliament uh, in introducing legislation that affected the colonies. Um, and he wanted it really to be a, a coordinate branch uh, or a coordinate legislature with Parliament when it came to governing the colonies. Uh, anything that was introduced within the the Grand Council had to also be approved by Parliament and vice versa. So he, he wanted them to work together um, to introduce legislation that would be acceptable to the American colonists. Galloway strongly believed in Parliament's legal authority. Uh, his essay shows that he was a pretty high-minded individual. How would he refute an American who came at him with the catchphrase, no taxation without representation? Well, he, he, I think, agreed. Um, he, he sympathized with him to a large degree. 
Uh, he thought that he had a legitimate point in invoking that idea, but he thought that Parliament's authority ultimately trumped their right to representation. He thought that they had a place within um, the, the legislature, and that that was the, the source of his proposal for a near colonial legislature. Um, so so he, he was really sympathetic to them, but he ultimately believed that because Parliament was sovereign, uh, that it, its power trumped any right they had to representation. Um, I, th- I think he would have been willing to to accept um, virtual representation of the colonists. You know, the idea that um, because Parliament was the legislature of the entire British Empire, um, it could on behalf of the colonists without directly representing them. Um, I, I think he he would he would have been willing to accept that before um, you know he would have accepted any kind of challenge to Parliament's authority. What do you feel the legacy of Galloway's candid examination should be? I think it's a document that um, really reveals a great level of intellectual rigor and sophistication. Uh, I don't think Galloway has really gotten um, his, his just as, you know, as a thinker um, who grappled deeply with the fundamental problems of political philosophy and constitutionalism. Um, I think that, you know, working from the starting point of indivisible sovereignty, which almost everyone in the 18th century sort of accepted as, as a maximum of government that, that couldn't be contested, you know, he, he maintained logical consistency in presenting a, a plan of union that uh, might have averted the revolution had it been adopted. Uh, I think it's also important to remember that um, you know, while Galilee was a loser and while we're often inclined, I think, to hell revolution as a triumph for liberty and representative government, uh, it had many tragic dimensions. And I think Galloway understood that those were inevitable um, if compromise wasn't achieved. Um, so, so I think that both because of his willingness to innovate within um, the intellectual framework of his time uh, and his efforts to achieve compromise, I think he should be appreciated as, as someone who uh, tried try to institute a practical solution to really puzzling uh, political problem. As someone who specializes uh, in this subject, could you talk a little bit about the importance of what many call the war before the war? Of course, we know the revolution is the actual war, but before the shooting began, you had this major ideological struggle, largely uh, using pamphlets and newspaper editorials as the battlefield. So could you talk about uh, the importance of those sort of writings that Galloway fits so neatly into? Uh, certainly. Yeah. I, th- I think that the pamphlet war um, was, was was really essential to the, the coming of the revolution. You know, pamphleteers had, I think, a tremendous amount of influence on the public. Um, as, as people like Bernard Balin have, have demonstrated, you know, I think they distilled a lot of uh, elements uh, of political thought that had been present in the colonies for a long time, but that hadn't really been given the occasion to um, sort of rise to the fore, and I think that they, they managed to, to package and present those ideas as as viable responses to, to the political problems that arose uh, in, in the aftermath of, of Parliament's attempt to, uh, to to govern the colonies in a way that would, you know, account for the expenses of of the French and Indian War, and would uh, t- tie the colonies to the empire more closely. And in a way that they that hadn't been done uh, for most for most of the colony's history. In your opinion, with everything Galloway wrote, the care he took to explain his potential intercolonial legislature that he hoped would have seen peace prevail, 
Uh, do you think it, it could have worked or was the ball rolling too far at that point to stop the revolution? I think the ball was rolling too far at that point. I think that maybe if Galloway had introduced his proposals um, earlier in the imperial crisis, he might have had some chance at, at, at having his ideas implemented. But, but I think that by the point that he proposed his planned union, um, independence was almost a foregone conclusion. Um, I, I think that's evident in the, the swiftness with which the Continental Congress rejected his proposals. I mean, I think that's a telling indicator that Galloway didn't have much chance of success, even if he had managed to generate some public support for his ideas. Um, so I, I think that his his ideas were doomed to fail because of, of the timing. Uh, I also think that it, it, it's kind of funny that Galloway actually, one of his arguments on behalf of maintaining uh, the empire was that he didn't think the colonies could uh, manage to come together and forge an effective union on their own. Um, yeah, he argued that uh, establishing a union uh, in concert with Parliament was a way of maintaining the empire. So it's, it's kind of like he almost contradicts himself in a way, um, you know, in, in his arguments against independence. Um, but, but, but yeah, I think it would have been extremely difficult to, to forge any kind of functioning intercolonial legislature that, that could have cooperated with Parliament. Tristan New, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.